Welcome to the Marketing Stir Podcast by Starista, probably the most entertaining marketing podcast you're going to put in your ears. I'm Jared Walls, Associate Producer and Starista's Creative Copy Manager. The goal of this podcast is to chat with industry leaders to get their take on the current challenges in the market, but also have a little fun along the way. In this episode, Vincent and AJ talk to Jerry Marone, Chief Revenue Officer at Spar Group. He discusses his childhood paper route and how it carved out his path into marketing. He goes into detail about innovations in Q-line and curbside marketing strategies, and they also delve into his passion for soccer. AJ tries some whiskey, and Vincent decorates the house. Give it a listen. Ladies and gentlemen, good morning. It's me, Vincent Petrofessa, which must mean one thing and one thing only. I'm happy? No, that's always happens. It's another episode of The Marketing Stir. Thank you so much for making The Marketing Stir what it is. We are really excited about the listenership. I guess that's a word. I just made it a word. Who knows? So great to be here. Starista's The Marketing Stir. Starista, who are we? Identity marketing company. We have our own B2B data, our own B2C data. We utilize that data to help you get new customers. Who couldn't use new customers. We have our own DSP. We could do OTT, CTV. Just name an acronym. We could probably do it. Email me at vincent at starista.com. That is how confident I am. I just gave you my email. Crazy, I know. Ladies and gentlemen, with me as always, love this guy. I always say I'd run through a wall for him. My co-pilot on this journey the CEO and founder of Starista. Ladies and gentlemen, AJ Gupta. What's up, AJ? Hey, Vincent. I had quite the weekend, actually. One of our uh, tennis folks arranged for a whiskey tasting through a local bar. So it was uh, outside on the patio, which was, you know, other than the fact that it was 38 degrees in San Antonio. What? uh, But he had outdoor heaters and whatnot. But uh, uh, let's just say on Sunday, I felt like a college student would on a Sunday after, you know, I think we tasted nine different whiskeys and he was, uh, felt like it was more than a shot. That's that's awesome. I, I love whiskey, as you know. That sounds like a fun weekend. And yeah, the Sunday hangover, especially when you're over 30, doesn't feel as great. No, Add two really children into not. the mix, it's the worst. Yep. Let me just say, uh, next morning, I was still expected to take care of the kids, which did not feel right. No, it doesn't. I know I have to always pace myself now because my wife, she would not... She'd be like, look, you're still, you did this to yourself. You have to take care of the kids. Yep. But it, yeah, it was a great weekend. We could tell it was the holiday weekend here. Well, we'll reveal. It doesn't matter when this comes out, right? Because yep. you're just listening for it. The holiday weekend. I'm in my office. I bought a poinsettia the other day. Who does that? I did. It's right here. For those of you who can see it, there's my poinsettia. I decorated the house with the children. And this morning, we have a new partner, a new client that I welcomed to the Starista family. So we always appreciate that. We do treat it as a family. So it is indeed a great morning. What's going to make it an even better morning? Our next guest. I feel like I've known this guest for many years. You ever feel that way with someone? I felt like it with this next guest. And I know I've said that before, haven't said that with every guest. I love every guest that we have on, but some I just feel like I've known for a long time. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome the Chief Revenue Officer from Spar Group, 
ladies and gentlemen, Jerry Marone. What's going on, Jerry? Morning, guys. How you doing? Great. We're happy. This is early for all of us. And look at this energy. It's going to be a great week, I have a feeling. What's going on with you, Jerry? Uh, you know, it sounds like uh, I had a similar weekend to you. A lot of time with the family, getting the house ready to roll for the holidays, dealing with, uh, with my two grandchildren that, that I am proud to have. And nice. With such a, obviously, with such a young face like Look this, how young you are. I was just going to say it. I have grandchildren, but I do. Youthful face, youthful glasses. I love it. I told you I like this guy. Jerry, for the listeners out there at the Marketing Stir, please tell everyone about the SPAR group. Sure. Um, SPAR group is a, a, we're over 50 years old, headquartered out of Auburn Hills, uh, Michigan, but we're a global provider of merchandising services and programs. We operate in 10 countries around the world. Um, and for those of you who are not in retail or uh, have anything to do with retail. Merchandising services is effectively anything that gets your product from out of the back room and onto the shelves of the store. So the store can be shopped, can be shopped effectively. Uh, we do different things here in America than we do in some of the other countries we're in. Um, we're in Australia, um, South Africa, India, China, Japan, Turkey, Canada, and Mexico. So we don't have a big presence in Europe. Uh, but we are in several of the other bigger uh, global markets, as well as in Brazil, which is one of our biggest offices. And Jerry, I want to talk later about some of the differentiators and, and the services that are offered in each country, what you notice there. But before I even get into that, your role as chief revenue officer, walk me through the day to day. Uh, I know you used to travel quite a bit. What's right. that been like now? Tell the audience. Again, like, like the title says, effectively, it's a, it's a really, really nice title for a really, really straightforward job. I'm responsible for all the sales and marketing of the company, period. So, um, I, you know, it, it is a very lofty thing. I always wanted to be like a C-level guy, although I don't think of myself as one. Uh, but effectively, day to day, I'm responsible for driving revenue. And, you know, it, it, this year has certainly been a challenge for everybody. Uh, thankfully, we'll finish the year. Uh, obviously, we're, we're publicly traded on NASDAQ, so I, I can't put any forward-looking statements out there and big, bold news. But we will finish the year um, not nearly as badly affected as a lot of companies in this space, specifically in the retail space. Um, and I think I, that goes to the fact that we have our client list. Uh, we work with a lot of essential retailers. We're very active in America. Uh, which is where we drive a lot of our profitable revenue that, that you know, kind of goes over the entire company. Um, in the dollar channel, so we have Dollar General, Dollar Tree, Family Dollar as big clients. CVS is a big client. Um, so, you, you know, we're, we're playing in parts of the retail space that are actually having up years, not down years um, because of COVID. So we've been, we've been somewhat fortunate there. And on the other side, the marketing side, um, working with my team to make sure they have the best materials. We're in the process of a, a website redo that should launch beginning of January. So that's taken up a lot of time. Um, no day is ever, there, there's no script for your days when you're in sales, as you know, you know, and you know very well. Um, I still call myself a sales guy. So title is nice, but I'm a sales guy. And Jerry, I, I see on your LinkedIn, you actually studied marketing. So what kind of drew you to marketing and sales in the first place at a very young age? Um, you know what? My first job was when I was 12 years old selling newspapers. 
and I had a paper route. And in New Jersey in those days, you, I delivered the, New, the Newark Star-Ledger, which is a morning newspaper. Um, and you had to get up at six o'clock in the morning or earlier, walk to your route, drop, you know, put the papers in the mailbox. And then every Thursday you went back and knocked on the door and you had to collect your pay um, and get paid face to face and give a person a little paper stub that said they paid for that week. And then you sent the money into the paper and you kept the difference. And um, you know what, when you smiled at people and when you asked them if they wanted the paper under their door or in their mailbox and they gave you extra money and a tip for that, um, it was kind of like commission. So I think I learned really early on that, you know, if you keep people happy, um, it, it works. It's, it's a good solution. Um, and then my first kind of real job, if a paper route is not a real job, is, um, you know, no, no, I'm, I'm proud to say I was a shoe salesman for Tom McCann in the Woodbridge Center Mall in Woodbridge, New Jersey, where you worked at, I worked for a dollar when minimum wage was $3 an hour. So you learned the value of commission and customer service really fast. So those, those are the two things that kind of formed a mentality. Uh, but when I went to, I, when I, my college experience was not the traditional college experience. Um, I went to school for a year uh, to play soccer. I, I thought you just had to show up and play soccer. I didn't realize you actually had to go to class. Um, so <laughs> after the season was over, I dropped out of college completely and went back to work full time in a retail store um, and then went back to community college. And a community college had a very influential professor who introduced me to a group called DECA which is Distributive Education Clubs of America, uh, which is effectively teaching, retailing, and marketing. Um, and it's a curriculum in high schools. And, and when I went to Montclair State, where I got my degree in marketing, it was actually marketing education. So I came out of college as a certified teacher. Um, didn't ever spend a single day in a classroom postgraduate, but I did get a degree in marketing education. So long way to get to the point, but it was really from a lot of different influences you know, when I was younger. Great, good background, Jerry. And in terms of kind of who you sell to today, obviously it's retailers, but how, who are some of kind of the key targets that you have within those companies? And are you also going after some of the smaller up and coming direct to consumer retailers? Would love to understand what the sure. strategy looks like. Well, the strategies, it's multiple, we have multiple strategies here. We have a domestic strategy here in the US and Canada, we are very similar companies. Um, and then globally, we have a very, very different strategy. So domestically here, retailers are our primary focus. We provide essential services for retailers. Within that retailer, it could be anyone from the merchandise side. So the chief buyer, the head merchant, um, and that type of person. It could be people who are in charge of merchandising so making sure the product goes through distribution um, and, it, and it could be the product owner as well um, so within the retailer that's who we focus on and that's been our strategy domestically internationally it's exactly the opposite we have a brand strategy we primarily work for brands um, in our retail scope um, and execute at retail because retail in america is managed and run incredibly different than retail around the world um, in terms of the actual movement of goods, who pays for things, how things get to stores, and so on. It's, it's, it's an A and B. So we as a company have to have an A and B approach. And Jerry, do you, do you feel that your experience on the other side, being at Bed Bath & Beyond, for example, <clears throat> as 
a retailer helped you in your position today? Uh, massively. Yeah, massively, I think. And vice versa. I was on marketing services before I got to Bed Bath & Beyond. And so it, it helped going in there, having that outside perspective. And now and where I am now, it helped having the inside perspective. Um, you don't really understand. I think most people think of retail in a certain way based on how you use retail because you're a shopper or if you sell to retail or whatever, but you don't really understand how retail truly works in the kind of foxhole as when you're in the doors um, and you see the way decisions are made. And the absolute best example I can give you is um, I was the director of strategy and worked for the SVP of strategy, who was also one of the CEO's inner circle. So he was one step from the CEO. He reported to the CEO. One of my jobs there when I first joined the company was to help bring in below the line revenue um, to a retailer, which can be, you know, there are a lot of ways retailers make money. It's not just when products go out the front door. It's through advertising programs. I mean, how many of you have gone to a grocery store and saw an advertisement on a shopping cart? Okay, that's a, that's a revenue share, revenue generator. There's a lot of those below the line programs. So I was designed to bring those programs in. So I, in the gentleman I worked for is a gentleman named Rich McMahon, incredibly smart guy, um, really, really good boss. And I, I went in, I was all excited. I went in, I said, hey, I have this great program, Rich. You know, I think, I think we could generate, you know, like 750,000, 800,000 in a year in below the line revenue. And he kind of just sat back in his chair and he's like chuckling a little bit to me. And he goes, because Jerry, you know, we could introduce one new item at the checkout and make a million dollars a year on that. He said, so I need you to think a little bigger. <laughs> and it was a huge, huge eye opener for him. That is interesting because, and then I, I, I want to get your take, Jerry, on, uh, you know, how, first of all, how long have you, were you at Bed Bath & Beyond? Because I, I love, I like that store a lot, and I, I want to ask some questions on. Uh, so, a, how long have you been there? And b, what have you noticed as far as like the biggest change that they went through in the past fifteen, twenty years? Uh, I was at Bed Bath from two thousand eleven to two thousand thirteen. Um, okay. So you're not, you know, you're now seven years in the rearview mirror, right? Um, when I was there, the stock price at Bed Bath and Beyond was in the mid seventies. The company was debt-free, had never borrowed a penny. Every bit of growth was organic. Um, and they were riding high. They had recently put linens and things out of business in a very head-to-head -head direct competition. And, uh, and everyone had puffed out chests and had massive success. And they had no idea what a down year looked like. This was also the time when the concept of omni-channel retailing was just starting to be talked about. Um, there, were, there were a lot of other things going on. Um, and a concept called shopper marketing was also just being born, right? You guys are a data company, so you, you know about data. Um, back in the day prior to that, when you were calling on retail, there were typically three buckets of money that, um, that advertisers, brands would spend. You had national advertising dollars, which is obvious, television, you know, the big stuff. You had national promotion dollars, um, which are, you know, a, a, I'm going to use some terms so I know they're not going to be, you know, an FSI. If anyone remembers what a Sunday newspaper was and you used to get a coupon in a Sunday newspaper, that was called an FSI or freestanding insert. And that could be a two to $3 million cost for a brand for one time in one Sunday newspaper. You know, so it's a lot of money. 
Um, so you had that dollars. And then the last you had what were called trade marketing dollars. So these are the monies that brands, Procter & Gamble, you know, whomever, would give to their sales teams to use on a localized basis or a regionalized basis for retailer programs. So you live in the New York, New Jersey area, uh, you have ShopRite. I think um, Sanjay's down in Texas, so you have HEB or whomever. Um, those guys would run circulars. And if you wanna buy into the circular, you wanna display, you want something like that, uh, that comes out of trade funds. What Shopper Marketing has done is blended a lot of those things together inside of brought all the spending into one place. At that time, Bed Bath & Beyond had no idea what Shopper Marketing was. They bought no data, no Nielsen data. They hired no consultants. Um, and when I went into a meeting and tried to introduce something new, most of the time I got laughed at and they were like, ah, you know, we don't need to do that. Everybody shops at Bed Bath & Beyond. You know, and it was really literally that type of attitude. So for three years, I fought that to try to get them to accept new things, new things, new things. If you look at where Bed Bath & Beyond is today, now I haven't checked the, tape, the price today, but I think last week their stock finally ended at around $19 a share. Wow. They were as low as $8 a share before the new CEO came in. So the new CEO's in now, Mark, Mark Triton, came from Target, turnaround specialist, um, a brilliant guy. I knew him from Target. And, uh, and he'll do all the right things and he'll get them back on. But they went through, they, at the end of the day, massively late to the market for online sales and, and really truly adopting an omni-channel approach to retail. And that's what he's preaching. That's what his annual report just preached, that they're going to be driving omni-channel as their way to go. But they're about five years late. Got it. Jerry, no, what I, happens with companies that have been sort of left behind uh, that are trying to catch up with sort of the uh, Amazon phenomena right now? Is there hope for them? Is there an advantage for them to having that on offline presence that they can capitalize on? I, I think there absolutely is. Um, it, it, all it, it all comes down to the fact that, first of all, you have to understand retail in general, retailers in general are the slowest to react. They're typically behind the eight ball when it comes to technology because they live in a brick and mortar world. And I mean, back in 2011, I'd be in meetings and we talked about Amazon all the time. Amazon was a real thing in 2011. It wasn't what it is today, but it was a real thing. Um, and it was one thing to talk about it and another thing to actually act on that talk and do something about it. So they were, they, it took too many years to kind of close that gap and actually start talk, actually start doing something. The main advantage though, and I think this goes to the way, what'll back me up on this is if you look at what Amazon does, so that Amazon went out and, and, um, and did a deal with Whole Foods, right? So like, okay, well now, now we're, gonna, we're gonna own Whole Foods. Well, why did they do that? Do, do you think they did that because they really wanted to be in the grocery business? No, I think they needed the doors. They want the doors around the country, right? They want physical retail presence that makes them stronger so now you flip the flip. The question is, who's going to be better? The Amazon going into the retail space or the retailer going into the Amazon space? It, it, you're always going to have this, you know, this, this butting of heads. So when you, you take um, what Bed Bath had done historically and is still doing, um, other retailers are now copying. They've turned all of their stores into distribution centers. So you have these massive distribution centers that are out there. But now you also have 1,500 stores that have inventory and are ready to ship. 
every day, right from the back room. Um, there's just a big, a lot of coverage in the last three weeks on what Best Buy is doing. They're doing exactly the same thing. They're taking their stores and they're saying, let's make them distribution centers. They're closer to the customer. We can ship closer. Things will get there faster. We can control inventory. So it really ultimately though, will come down to who's got the better system running the back room, right? Who can link all this inventory together in some type of real time and move goods around the world faster and more efficiently? That's who's gonna win. Is there a retailer in particular or a store that you've been pleasantly happy with, with how they have adapted in recent times? Um, yeah, I think Best Buy is a fantastic example. Um, if you go back to what Best Buy, Best Buy made a, a critical error. Gosh, it's probably been six or seven years ago. Um, if you go to a Best Buy store now, and I'm going to guess both of you have been in a Best Buy. Sure. You see people with blue shirts on. You see people with black shirts on. And you may not recognize it. You will, you will next time you go in. But those are people on the floor. Back in the day, Best Buy was always known to be the go-to place for technology. If I wanted to know about the computers that are coming out or the newest technology, I'd go talk to somebody at Best Buy and I'd learn. About seven or eight years ago, Best Buy decided to eliminate all of those people. They eliminated a lot of their floor, quote unquote, salespeople who were commissioned salespeople in, in, and said, we're going to lower our overhead costs by eliminating these people and their sales tank. And it was right on the heels of as the internet boom was going up because of a term called showrooming. I'm sure you've heard of showrooming. So Best Buy said, okay, well, the way we'll get away, for, away from showrooming is we'll, we won't have people on the floor. So you can't then come to our store and learn about the product and buy it online because we're not going to go teach you and help you buy from Amazon or you know, somebody else. Um, they fortunately realized their mistake pretty quickly. But what they did is not just hire people back. They went out and they went to their suppliers, Samsung, Toshiba, you know, so on Apple, Google, and everybody else. So now when you go into a Best Buy store, you're gonna look and you're gonna see people in blue shirts and you're gonna see people in black shirts. Those black shirt people work for third-party companies like Spar. Um, now we don't do this service, it's called assisted sales, but some of our competitors do do assisted sales. Our Spar Canada does assisted sales actually in Best Buy. <clears throat> so these are people that are hired. So Samsung's a client of mine. When we do, when, when Samsung's going to launch a new handset, they call it an iconic launch. We don't know what the name of the product is. We don't know anything about the product. And we're given 48 hours notice. And then we have to be, we do Target for them. We have to be in all the Target stores and set up their new displays and be able to turn it in 48 hours. And then we finally see what the product is and all the other stuff. Um, what Best Buy did is they went out to these, these folks and said, we want to put product experts on our, on our floor, but we want you to pay for it. And we're gonna give you your own little space in the store. So now if you go to a Best Buy store, you see these vignettes, you know, so there's Google and Chromecast and Chrome, and there's Apple and there's Microsoft and so on. And those people in the black shirts are paid for by the supplier, but they're trained on how to use the register and how to, do all the, the performance in Best Buy. So that's a massive change in retail that took place a few years ago. And in my mind, that's the future. Um, it's already happening, but you're, you're going to see much more, uh, there's a term called experiential retail. And as we come out of COVID, um, I believe the shoppers are dying for experiences. 
people want to get back out there. They want to go back into stores. I, I think that the, the press of the death of retail is so overblown and so inaccurate. Uh, retail will be here even, even now, except for COVID, even now prior to COVID, 80 cents of every dollar was being spent in a brick and mortar store. Okay, when COVID goes away, and, and every year it will go down a little bit, but every person that predicts the future of these things, not me, but the smart people out there, will tell you they don't think it's going to go below 70 cents. Like it, it will, it will rarely get below. Now there are going to be some categories like apparel that it's going to, it's going to be the exact opposite. Apparel could go as low as 30% in store. So you're going to see a massive change. And I think one of the things you're going to see is stores get smaller, more creative, um, and more experiential. So it's going to be more of an experience to go to a store and less of a task to go to a store. And thanks, Jerry. I, you know, I, I've been learning so many terms from you. And, and that was kind of my, my question was, we've had some people in the retail industry on the podcast and they've said something similar to the fact that, look, retail is not going anywhere, but it's going to be an experience. Like, like you said, I mean, I'm spoiled in the sense that being in Manhattan, I'm at some of those flagship stores where you go in, it's bright. There's like people, uh, you know, is that, is, is, can you elaborate more on what you think it's going to be? Uh, well, what do you mean by the ex, the experience? Uh, could, well, because Best Buy is a great example. I didn't know all of that, but what I loved about Best Buy, what I still love about Best Buy, is they have the Geek Squad, right? So that that interaction, they could come to your to your home because sometimes you need that assistance. I also feel like the Best Buy employees are not commissioned, so I don't think you get those sometimes pushy retail store salespeople, but elaborate more on what, what do you think it's going to be? Are you think stores are going to close, more stores are going to close? Are they going to reopen with those exper experiences? Elaborate on that. Um, I think what, and again, uh, the, 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 the digital impact on retail has been happening every year, a little more every year, a little more every year. COVID has thrown the playbook out the window and forced everyone to, in retail, has forced everyone to um, accelerate what probably was going to happen anyway in a really tight window. Things like, um, you've probably heard the term BOPIS, B-O-P-I-S, buy online, pick up in store. Um, so that, that's a very well-known, if you Google BOPIS, there's a yeah. zillion. <laughs> I, I know the concept, now I just learned a new acronym. Buy I online, love it. pick up in store. BOPIS. Curbside delivery. I mean, who would have ever thought, why, why would you want to do curbside delivery, okay, in a, re, in a normal retail environment? So COVID goes away. Do you ever want to not have someone come in your door as a retailer? Of course not. The concept of buy online, pick up in stores, making it easier for you. But I still wanted you in the store because I would sell you something else. Or you only normally visit um, a Bed Bath & Beyond four times a year, and now I can get you there four more times. Remember, there are only two things that a retailer ultimately cares about. And anyone who's in retail who may be listening to this is gonna hate me. Um, but the bottom line is there's only two things. Increased visits, increased basket size. That's it, okay? I get you to the store more frequently and I get you to buy more stuff. Everything, out that, everything outside of that is not, I don't mean it irrelevant in a bad way, but it's irrelevant. 
Okay, I run a business. I wanna make money, I wanna make profits for my shareholders. You need to buy more and visit me more as a retailer. So a lot of the technology is around how do we do that? Well, curbside pickup completely flies in the face of that. So what do I envision? And this could be complete pie in the sky, but if you look at like what Walmart has done, Walmart has now again, and I love talking to people in Manhattan about Walmart because they're like kind of glazy in the eyes. And they've never been to the middle of a country and realize what these stores do. But you have these gigantic service lockers at, at some Walmart stores in certain markets that you literally just drive up to and you pick your stuff up out of a, a locker in the parking lot. You know, they also have big towers in stores, but now they're moving some of these lockers to outside of the store. Well, that kind of flies in the face. So what I envision is that you will start to see where, where feasible retail move from inside of the store to more in the parking lot as well. Why do you, when you go to a store, like, have you ever shopped at a Marshall's or a TJ Maxx? Yeah. Okay. Sure. Do you know what it's called when you line up to pay? No, but it's, it's unique because there is a, it's kind of like a That's little maze part. and there's product all up and down that maze. Is that what you're referring a to? A U-line? A Q-line. Q-line. E, whatever, however you spell Q. Q. Like, like, how, like the, how the English say. I'm yeah, in the Q. Q it's yeah. called the Q-line. The concept of Q-line marketing is something that Marshall's really launched and, and, and have now taken it to the next degree. But I can tell you that um, for those of you who, are, who know certain C-store chains, um, there's a, I can't talk about it because I'm under an NDA and we were working on a project, but there's a large C-store chain. So you think of a convenience store, not a lot of space. These particular convenience stores are more spacious than the others. They're higher end. They are now putting in a queue line. So they're taking convenience to a convenient level, right? I mean, it doesn't get more convenient than a convenience store, but they are going to put in a queue line because there's a, a there's a ton of studies out there that will tell you when a queue line is in place, you can see your ticket go up, your basket go up as much as 40%. So someone's in line to buy something for $20 or $30 and they spend another eight to $10 in that queue line. That is gold to a retailer. Wow. That is gold. Yeah, I'm learning so much. And look at this, AJ, that we have like an, I, we have like an insider, which, which I love. And, because you're right, Jerry, I'll walk in line and I'm like, sure, I need a sash of lavender. No, I don't. No you one need needs a sash of, of lavender. Reese's cups when you're at Best Buy, right? Because you went <laughs> yeah. to Best Buy to buy Reese's cups and a, and a Diet Coke. Yeah, exactly. But that's like, oh, it's like a movie experience. That's what you need. It's, uh, well, I love it. Let me tell you, Vincent, as your kids grow older, like my seven-year-old on the aisle walking with me, it's... Uh, it's it's quite a fight to like get things off his hands and put it back oh, yeah. on the shelf. No, my three my three year old dad. this weekend. You do not want to be the bad dad. Yeah, yeah. I know. My, there's my... like people around you, so you don't want him screaming. So you're like, sure, you can have a Reese's Pieces yeah. maybe four. Okay, but see, see, but that goes and that goes right to. So we started this conversation talking about spar and what we do, right? So think about merchandising for a second. Okay, now you're in a store. I'm six foot one, your seven-year-old is four feet tall, right. right? So now I'm a brand, I'm, I'm Hershey Foods, and I want to start putting my product in store, 
and I need to get it cut in. So that's another merchandising term. I get cut into the, to the planogram, the, the place where the product's gonna go. I need to think about who my shoppers are, how they shop, where they shop, where they shop, not just in physical location, but where they shop, where are their eyes? And how do I determine what placement I want on a shelf? So now one of our clients that we do merchandising for is the distributor of all the Pokemon cards, baseball cards, all those cards that are out there. Where do you think I want the Pokemon cards to be in the queue line? Mm -hmm. I don't want them at the top shelf. I want them on the bottom shelf where nobody else wants the bottom shelf. Because when your seven-year-old comes through the line and sees those Pokemon cards at three bucks a pack at 70% or 80% gross margin, that's a home run. So this is all part of what goes into, you know, when a product goes into a store and the vast majority of consumers are completely oblivious to it. Hmm. Yeah, it happened to me. It, it literally happened to me this weekend where he wanted a toy. And I was like, no, you know, Santa's going to be here. You don't need a toy. And he's like, well, okay, well, I need those gingerbread cookies. I'm like, Who? no, you don't. You don't need gingerbread cookies. And, you know, gingerbread has a certain flavor. We brought him home because I got him because I caved in. I want to be the cool dad. And he was like, didn't like it. I was like, of course you don't like it. Gingerbread is, is this molasses, whatever the spice was. He didn't like it. Yeah. And, and then I had to eat it. And that's how you know, I'm putting on weight. Yay. Thank you, uh, COVID. Jerry, there is a term that I know, it, uh, and I want you to elaborate on it. But I, I, it's slotting. Tell people about slotting, uh, you know, the people who are listening out there about that term. Well, it's a, I mean, that's an old term, and I don't know how technically accurate it is anymore, but there used to be, <laughs> and there still is at some level, uh, something called slotting fees. And it's very simply understood. So I'll ask you two guys. You are the, you now both just started a new company and you came out with this fantastic line of ketchup. Ketchup is just the greatest ketchup in the world. And you go into your buyer at ShopRite and say, you know what, I need you to carry my ketchup. Oh, look, we got 10 studies here. I used Starista, I did all this great email marketing and I got a thousand customers that want to come to your store and buy it. I want to use their service to send them out email coupons. So they're going to come in and use those coupons. Um, but you have to put it on the shelf. So when you walk down the ketchup aisle at ShopRite, do you see any open spaces that are not being packed out right now? Nope. You don't, right? Mm -mm. So how does my product get into that shelf? So I'm the buyer and I sit back and go, you know what guys, um, I, I earn $17 a square foot out of that space when I have the places that I have now filled. Tell me why I should put yours in there. Well, we're gonna do $20 a square foot. Okay, well, prove that to me. Well, how about if we prepay you some of that extra profit in a slotting fee so that you pull off, and again, when you have a product on a shelf, so if this water bottle is sitting on a shelf, that one water bottle, and then I'm stacked with water bottles behind it, is called a facing. So this is the facing. And I have, now I have a four foot section. That four foot section now has 12 facings on it. And those facings are on one row and I have six rows. So six times 12 is 72. There are 72 facings on there. You're coming to me as the buyer and say, I need four of those. I need four spots because I have a regular ketchup. I have one with sriracha and I have a mustard and I have something else. So there's my, I need those four spots. And I don't want the four spots at the bottom and I don't want the four spots at the top. I want the four spots at eye level. Well, you know what? The ones at eye level have one cost. The ones up here have a different cost. The ones down here have a different cost. 
write me a check. That's a slotting fee. Now, in the old days, it literally used to be write me a check. You know, they, the, 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 the buyers would put a price value on it and go, you got to write me a check for this, and that's going to now help me buy some space for you. Nowadays, it's packaging up other programs instead. I'll buy an ad in your circular every week for the next 12 weeks. I'll put a display in. I'll give you inventory on consignment. Um, I'll buy into your golf outing. You know, I'll buy an email program from you as sponsored emails. So, I, you know, I will do all these other marketing and promotional activities that will help justify and build back um, some of the value you think you may be losing by pulling off a Heinz and a Hunts to make space for, you know, Starista catching. Love it. Interesting. And then, Jerry, so coming, moving on to a little bit of a more of a personal topic, we, before the podcast, we were talking about sports and your love for soccer and tennis. So our producers here sent me a note saying you had once negotiated a famous soccer player's contract. So we'd love to learn more about what happened, who was the player, and give us some insight on that. Well, good, good research, good research by your team, because that was back in 2010. Um, I, I not only negotiated, it was a women's professional soccer. I was the general manager of a team called Sky Blue FC, who competes now in a league called the NWSL, National Women's Soccer League. Um, when I was there, it was the Women's Professional Soccer League, WPS, that lasted from 2009 to 2011. And... Uh, I traded for her first to bring her back to New Jersey. She's a homegrown New Jersey talent that a lot of people didn't really, you know, a lot of people outside of women's soccer didn't really know about, but she came a little bit more famous after a couple world cup victories. Um, and that's Carly Lloyd. So I, uh, nice. I brought Carly back to Jersey. She went to Rutgers university. She's a Jersey kid. Mm -hmm. um, great person, phenomenal player, just the, one of the toughest competitors you'd ever see. But there were a lot of other great, you know, like I, uh, Megan Rapino is another player that everybody knows about now. Um, she was a young player back then. Um, so Megan, I, I know. Uh, but the, the player, the two, play, uh, two other Jersey girls we had um, were Chrissy Rampone, Chrissy Pierce Rampone, who's also called Captain America. Mm -hmm. Chrissy is the only woman, I believe, that's been on um, four gold medal teams. Wow. So she got four gold. I think she got four gold medals. And Heather O'Reilly is another Jersey girl who, again, couple gold medals, couple World Cups. These are, these are the top of the trade. In women's, in women's soccer, uh, America is still top of the charts, unlike our men. Yep, I agree. And then from a kind of a, another personal note, what have you been doing during this pandemic? Any new hobbies that you have picked up? Uh, is eating and drinking count. <laughs> it, it does <laughs> yep uh, as you can see over my shoulder that's the new home bar we have um since covid back oh, in the nice <laughs> but uh i and i made a purchase of a, a kickstarter product called beer maker so i'll be able to brew my own beer in another couple of weeks when that shows up nice. um now my my hobbies are you know I, I follow sports i'm a big follower of the english premier league manchester united is my team um i've got a couple grandchildren thank Thank God that um, they are part of our little bubble through this whole thing. Uh, they live close by. We've been able to see our, our two granddaughters during this entire time. And um, for my wife, I know my wife would echo this. That's, that's been the saving grace for us. If we were not able to see them, like I cannot 
for the life of me. Could not imagine how it would feel being a grandparent multi-states away or other part of the country and to have to um, just go digital. You know, the, this is a nearly four-year-old and a 10-month-old. So um, it's, uh, th they've been the saving grace through this whole thing. Uh, that's awesome, Jerry. I love to hear that. And yes, send some of that beer over to me when you brew it. I'm right here in Manhattan. I'll pick up the shipping costs. Don't you worry. So, Jerry, the just the last two questions here that we have before we wrap it up. That has flown by. Jerry, we, we mentioned LinkedIn prior to this. Our staple question here on the Marketing Stir, is there a LinkedIn message that gets Jerry Marone's attention? And is there a LinkedIn message that is just a pet peeve of yours? <laughs> They're kind of one and the same, I'll be honest. Um, I, 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 the, the LinkedIn things that really get my attention, clearly I, I've been in the retail business, in and around retail, whether it's marketing service or whatever, for, with the exception of that three-year brief period where I was in professional soccer, the better part of the last 25 years has been spent in and around retail. And when people get on LinkedIn, and just all they, they, they found some little clip somewhere and now retail is dead and dying. It's going away. Everyone buys from Amazon. We're all going to be out of business. That is both my pet peeve and what gets my attention. And that's a battle that I enjoy fighting. You know, you said you've read some of my LinkedIn yeah, stuff. I love your stuff. <laughs> I, I, I come out LinkedIn the same way I come out life. Like I, this conversation I had this morning with a guy who unfortunately one company, 26 years, I prefaced the conversation and he's a friend of mine and I've known him for, for probably 10 years. And I said, look, you're going to get one way from me and that's going to be direct and honest. And if you don't want direct and honest, then let's back off now. We'll stay friends and that's fine. But if you want direct and honest, that's what I'm going to be. And I believe it's, it's being genuine. I, I actually spoke to a college class last week. A friend of mine's a professor um, for a sports PR class and he asked me to speak to the class and I did like a two hour you know, thing that was a lot of Q&A and, and helping kids figure out their, their life in sports and how to work in sports. And, and that was the advice I gave them. The same thing is just be genuine. Just don't try to be someone else. Don't try to be who you think you want to be. Be who you are. Let that come through. And people are either going to love you or they're going to hate you, but you got to accept both. I, I like that. You know, I, I, that's, I try to live by that. Be, be genuine. Uh, what you see is what you get. And sometimes people say, like, oh, that's an exaggerated version. I'm like, no, that's me. I promise you that's me. You know, I, I, yeah, I like that. Yeah, but you know what? It, it's got to be based in, with a, from a sales perspective. I've been a sales guy my whole life, you know, and, and management or not, you're always in sales. Anybody in a company who says they're not in sales is lying to you. Everybody in a company is in sales. But if you have a high degree of empathy, if, if you can literally take yourself out of yourself and for a second in a sales situation, try to feel what it likes to be that person on the other side of the table and understand when they make a decision, what's at risk for them. And, and, and if you can be that, you will be the greatest salesperson in the world who never has to sell anything. If you talk to people who are longtime clients of mine, who a large majority become longtime friends, which to me is the greatest the, the greatest pat on the back you have of being a salesperson is they will say they never felt like I was selling them anything. They felt like I was listening to what they needed and figuring out a solution. And if that solution was one-tenth of what I would have liked to sell to them, I accepted the one-tenth because ultimately get to the whole thing. But if you're solving problems along the way, they're never, they're, people don't want to be sold to. 
but they love to buy. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. People don't like to, people like to be sold, but they love to buy. Yeah. I know. I love that. Jerry, this has been awesome. It's right on the dot here. I have so much more to cover with you. That'll be another conversation. This flowed. Ladies and gentlemen, that is Jerry Marone. We appreciate your time. The Chief Revenue Officer of Spar Group Retailers. Reach out to Jerry. He is on LinkedIn. I am Vincent Petrofessa. That's AJ Gupta. This has been another episode of The Marketing Stir. Thank you so much, and thank you for listening. Thanks for listening to The Marketing Stir podcast by Starista. Please like, rate, and subscribe. If you're interested in being a guest on the podcast, email us at info at themarketingstir.com. Thanks for listening.